Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in 5, 4, 3, 2, Hello and thanks for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This show is made possible because of a grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals, HSG, and the Griffin Foundation. I'm your host, Lauren Holder, and today we have Dr. Albie Richard on with us to talk about the eyes in Huntington's disease. Dr. Richard is a movement disorders neurologist and assistant professor in the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Montreal, in addition to being an adjunct professor in the Department of Neurology and Neurosurgery of McGill University. Dr. Richard completed a PhD in neuroscience at the Montreal Neurologic Institute, followed by medical school at the University of Calgary, then residency training in adult neurology back at McGill University. He pursued fellowship training in movement disorders and cognitive neurology at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, um, Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, and um, is actually um, good friends with Dr. Sam Frank. So we are very glad to have you on today, Dr. Richard. My pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, you're very welcome. Before we get started, I do want to do um, a few updates. So I'm looking for our listeners to share their HD love stories for Valentine's Day. So please send me an email at lauren at help4hd.org. That's H-E-L-P, the number four, hd.org, with your love story, with your significant other. And you may hear it on our show on February 10th, right before Valentine's Day. Um, you can also include a shout out to your loved one, and I'll share that on air as well. Um, I think it's going to be a really great and special show, so please make sure to um, to tune in on February 10th and send me those emails. Um, so, Dr. Richard, let's start with why research and why Huntington's disease. Okay, well, um, so that's that's a great question. I'll I think the best way for me to answer that question is to perhaps give you um, a, a little bit more information, although thank you for the introduction because it really does kind of summarize um, my trajectory uh, broadly. Um, so why research? Um, I guess the answer is just that research was sort of my first love um, as a sort of, a, you know, as I was younger and defining my career and defining what I was wanted to do, I actually started in research and uh, I, met, I did uh, formal training in research before I even entered medical school. Um, as you mentioned, uh, at the Montreal Neurological Institute. And that, that sort of drive and passion that I gained from my PhD years always stuck with me. And, you know, you said something really interesting in your introduction, which, uh, or, or I think earlier when we were chatting about how really one of the purposes of your, your, your format and your forum is to, is to bridge research and, and patients and, and sort of the clinical realm with the research realm. And that struck me because the Montreal Neurological Hospital was founded on that very idea. And it's a really cool place because it is at once a research institute filled with researchers, but then they have devoted floors for patients and for doctors. And the whole 
idea philosophy of it was that you know you'd be walking down the hallway and you as a physician and you you would encounter some leading expert in a research topic and you might go to lunch with them and, and inspire each other's work and so that was sort of the culture that I was forged in and it, it never left me and, and now I feel very very lucky to be at the University of Montreal um, working as a neurologist uh, at least half the time but the other half of my time is uh, is devoted to research so um, it feels like a really uh, great marriage that allows me to use all the different things that I've been able to pick up over the years. Huntington's, uh, to answer the second part of your question, why Huntington's? Well, that was something that um, I, I had always been fascinated by Huntington's disease because it is so unique and the patients um, struck me ever since I was a trainee uh, as, as a source of inspiration, really. Uh, I, I found it so, um, so, so interesting and so, uh, I guess the word is, I would have to say is, I, I was really drawn to that patient population because of the nature of the disease. It's something that you find out that you have when you're young and you're kind of have to, you're faced with a daily reality of knowing this, about this disease, often from before the time you're symptomatic, uh, well into it, and, and most people will have family experience, et cetera. And so there's so many different complex layers that uh, inform people's reality when you're talking about a neurological disease that you know, is also psychiatric and it's also executive. And um, it, the way people comport themselves, the strength, the, the, the way they confront their realities and live their lives often do incredible things um, that are not at all bounded or shaped by their disease was just a big source of inspiration to me as a, as a young doctor. And that was only strengthened when I got to spend time with Dr. Frank in Boston. Uh, who is, you know, such an amazing champion for the HD community in the States. Um, and so it was also being inspired by him as a mentor that really consolidated my, my, my desire to continue with this uh, uh, now that I'm uh, an independent researcher. Yeah, he's absolutely one of a kind, and uh, I can't say enough good things about him. I'm so glad that we have him in the community and that you were able to learn from him because if there's anybody to learn from he is absolutely one of the best so um, I'm very grateful that you are working in Huntington's disease and you're focusing now on research in the eyes of Huntington's which is not necessarily a new subject obviously we know that you know there are eye movements in HD um, but what specifically are you doing with your research? Yeah, so um, so my research sort of continuing with this theme that I'm trying to reconcile my own sort of previous life as a as a PhD student um, with what I do now as a neurologist who's focused on Huntington's. Um, my PhD topic was about the relationship between visual perception and eye movements, a certain type of eye movements um, called saccades, that they're really fast ones that you'll make voluntarily. Um, from one point to another. Uh, humans generate saccades all the time to explore their visual environments. Um, they're very fast. They're often imperceptible to others because they're small in amplitude. And on average, we make between three and five of these movements per second to refresh the image in our, on our retina, to keep our retinal cells always excited and, and to keep a constant influx of information to the brain, to the visual cortex, to, so that we can construct the world. Um, 
so that was sort of where I was coming from in terms of my own knowledge and expertise is uh, I spent years learning how to measure these movements. Um, I worked with both humans and with actually um, monkey populations. So we did a lot of experiments looking at, at how their eye movements were controlled and recording from cells in, in, in the brains of monkeys as they were performing eye movement tasks to try to understand how these circuits are actually generated and what, you know, what are the actual important players. Because one of the cool things about that system, you know, the, the monkey brain, the macaque monkey specifically, is that their eye movement control apparatus is basically identical to that of humans. So because of that access that we have in the research community, the eye movement system as a motor control system is arguably probably the most well-documented. And it's, you, you could make a strong argument for the fact that um, it might be the system that we understand the most in the human brain in terms of going all the way from perception to action. Um, if, you, if you compare it, for example, to like the arm reaching system as, a, as, a, you know, as another one that a lot of people use. So that's kind of where that came from, is um, wanting to sort of leverage that knowledge that I already had. And then, as you said, there's a lot that's been studied already in the context of eye movements and Huntington's. People have been doing work for years, really good work about um, trying to understand, you know, the, the specific areas of the brain that are known to be involved in Huntington's and that are also known to be involved in the control of specific eye movements. And they've shown, um, fairly, you know, in a, in, in a, in a valid, validated and robust way, previous studies have shown that um, certain parameters of eye movements in terms of their accuracy, their timing, the ability to control or suppress eye, uh, involuntary eye movements, all these things tend to be correlated to disease severity um, in Huntington's disease. So as people become more symptomatic and go further along in their disease, um, we know that parameters of eye movements will change. And if I had to summarize that, because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a complex literature and it's pretty involved, but if I had to summarize it in a really simple way, I, I would say that we have a lot of evidence, evidence now that says that motor control is just more difficult in the eye movement system and eye movements tend to be less precise and more jittery, which intuitively, you know, people will probably appreciate because we know that Huntington's, you know, in a, in a general way, tends to make your movements a little less precise um, and more jittery. So, so that's something we knew. What I'm looking at more specifically, though, is um, a type of eye movement that involves learning. So not just saccades, uh, these fast ballistic movements from one point to another in space, but rather how you can make a repetitive movement like that over time and, um, and, and learn, learn uh, use it, develop it as part of a learning paradigm to make them more efficiently. A lot of people study motor learning. Again, nothing new there. Um, if, you, if you imagine, you know, we all pick up different motor skills throughout our lives. If you want to learn how to play tennis um, at any point in your life, you know, you have to pick up this racket, you have to coordinate um, your arm, the way you grip the racket, all these different joints, the wrist, the elbow, the shoulder, and you have to align that with whatever, with the ball coming at you. And your brain has to figure out the best trajectory and the best way to control all those groups of muscles in the arm and, and in the, around those joints 
to allow you to strike the ball. That's just a really crude, quick example of how motor learning is really important because, you know, most people who play tennis or any sport uh, will know that there's a huge difference between the first time you pick up that racket and, you know, for example, a few months later after you've been practicing. Your, your brain and your body just sort of learn quickly how to optimize those angles and those forces to allow you to achieve the desired outcome. Well, it turns out that the eye movement system does that all the time. And it involves a huge network of structures in the brain, many of which are known to be affected by Huntington's. Um, so that was something that really intrigued me because when I tried to look further into it, there wasn't really much that was known about how changes in that broader movement control and, and motor learning network um, were affected by, by Huntington's. So this project is really aimed at characterizing those changes and trying to understand them from the, from the perspective of disease severity and as the disease advances. And I guess using that information to, to see how the brain can adapt. Um, correct. Learning, yeah. Correct. Correct. So um, there's two sort of big, I guess, areas of relevance for, for a project like this. You know, why would you want to look at oculomotor learning in HD? And, and my answer would be twofold. So the first one, as most people in the community will, will no doubt be aware, it's a very, Huntington's is a, is a super active and an exciting area of research right now. And in the clinical trial community where, you know, there's a lot of really, really uh, exciting studies going on that are very promising and very optimistic for changing disease course and, you know, maybe even one day modifying disease in a, in a permanent way, we'll, we'll see. Those of us that are involved are all very excited about this, and, and I'm sure you, you're well aware of that. Um, one of the things about these new fancy drugs, though, that we're testing and developing that could be game changers for HD is that, you know, now we're in the phase of proving that they work. And I have every confidence that we're going to see that happen in the coming years. I really do. There's been a few hiccups with some of the bigger studies uh, recently, uh, the, the results of which weren't, weren't as positive as we had, we had hoped, and that was a bit of a setback, but it's certainly not uh, changing, I think, the, the general momentum of the field, and I think we will see the, these compounds working at some point. But then imagine that these work, and we can say, okay, well, if the patient takes X medication, we can actually modify their disease, and we can suppress the protein in a way that you know, basically prevents them from developing serious disease. Well, then you have to ask a whole bunch of other questions about, uh, especially because Huntington's is so unique, right, in terms of diagnosis and timing. Well, when do you treat these people? Because these aren't cheap, easily available, easily accessible medications. So do we treat someone from the moment they're born? Do we treat someone when they're five years old, 10 years old, before they, you know, do we wait till they're adults and they start having symptoms? Is that the best window for treatment? And these are, that's actually quite an important question. Logistically, from an infrastructure perspective, um, sadly, probably from a financial perspective, that probably will play into things. So I think there's a lot of um, relevance to being able to have, and this is a hot topic word that we all talk about and, 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 and we, we all use often, is having a biomarker, having a, a thing, whether it be um, a substance you can measure, a chemical, a compound in the blood, a protein, 
or in, in the case of my research, a behavioral measure that you can actually point to and say, well, this is actually what's happening in the brain at this time. And what's appealing about looking at behavior on, a, on an ocular motor learning task is that it's totally non-invasive. The person essentially sits in a chair and stares at a computer screen for 20 minutes, does this task, um, which takes a bit of attention, but it's fairly easy to do. And then we have this sort of readout that's more of a, of a performance measure, but it actually reveals a lot of information about what parts of the brain are affected just because of the nature of the task for the reasons I explained earlier. So, um, so having a, a, a non-invasive, accurate biomarker that can maybe tell us about the status of the brain before the patient becomes symptomatic, I think would be really, really important as we're getting into this era, as we're ushering this era of um, you know, disease-modifying treatments and, and needing to decide who and when we're going to treat them. Uh, the second reason is more academic, and it's, it's about expanding knowledge. Uh, you know, Huntington's is such a unique model system because it does involve many parts of the brain dynamically. And, um, and we don't, using a task like this not only allows us to learn about HD and its progression, but it also allows us to learn about how the brain generally works and how oculomotor control generally works when you're talking about a learning paradigm. And um, so there's a lot of pure academic neuroscientific interest there. And I think that, that, that will serve the community, the neuroscience community in general. Thank you for that. Um, that's very helpful and very exciting. Um, so going back to your, the first, your first point, um, because I think that one of the things that you said was really good about um, being able to tell before you're symptomatic with the eye movement, right? So I'm curious, because I know when I did a study, um, gosh, this was, it's got to be 10 years ago. Um, you know, they put this thing on my head and, and they measured eye movements. And, um, you know, like you said, it's this very small, minute movement, but that they were trying to catch. So is it that same thing? And you're able to tell the difference with the symptomatic versus non-symptomatic. And um, I guess, what would those readings show, you know, like how, how, is it like an EEG? Is it more, uh, is it like something else that you could compare it to? Because I'm very curious how, how it would look. Yeah. So uh, great question. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly apologize if I kind of grazed over that. A no, little you're bit. good. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So just to give you more information on the actual task. So um, eye movement, it's such a broad, complex field. You know, if you talk about just how do you categorize eye movements? There are formally, I think, six different categories of eye movements themselves that we can sort of talk about. And the ones that I've been mentioning, saccades, are just one of those six, those sort of quick ballistic ones that go from your eye darts from one point to the, to the next. And it sounds like maybe uh, the experiment you participated in was maybe looking at saccades. So what I'm um, planning to do, and I, I have to be fully transparent, this the study is only underway now. It's, I, haven't, I don't have hard data that I can share with you, unfortunately, at this point. But the idea of the study is that um, basically someone will sit down in front of a computer screen and we can measure the eye movements now with really high accuracy just using what's called an infrared eye tracker. So you basically shine an infrared light onto the pupil 
and uh, because it's, it sort of measures the pupil at a very high sampling rate, you can track it in time and in space uh, to, to very, in a very precise way. And again, this is something that's, that the patient looks at, so it's, there's nothing mounted on the head, there's nothing uncomfortable or inconvenient. It's just something that's kind of being measured uh, directly, um, and it's attached to the computer monitor that they're staring at. And then, as you did, or probably in a, in a way very similar to, to, to what you have done in the past, uh, the task really involves just moving your eyes from one point, let's say on the left, you see your eyes will start on the left side of the screen, and then at some point, there'll be a little flash on the right side, and that's your cue to dart your eyes over to that side. And uh, what, what the experiment of, in my case, looking at learning, so there's a way you can manipulate this task, um, which sounds pretty boring, right? Moving your eyes from the left to the right over and over again. But there's a way you can manipulate the task such that as soon as your eyes start to make that movement, when they're in space, when they're on the way to the target, um, your eye tracker will know when that happens, of course, and it'll, it'll signal the task to shift the target location over a little bit. It'll either shift it outward, so more out to the right, or shift it inward. It'll shift it towards the fixation point where your eye started. And when I say shift, I'm, I'm talking about a very small shift on the screen that's imperceptible to the participant. So the little target moves over a little bit while the eyes are in flight. And that means, of course, that the first eye movement you program won't land on target because it'll have shifted over. But what's really cool is that even though you're not consciously aware of this movement, this shift, your brain is, and your brain measures an error. And what it does on subsequent trials is it actually, without you being aware of it, again, you're never aware of this little shift in the, move, in the target location, but your brain will actually shift the motor program so that even if you say, let's, let's put numbers on it just to make it 100% easy uh, to understand. Let's say the movement that you want to make is 10 degrees. We use degrees of visual angle as our, as our metric. So you want to make a 10 degree eye movement from left to right. Um, and then, of course, the task will have shifted it so that the target, instead of being at 10, let's say it moved out to 12. So your brain will have moved your eyes 10 degrees on the first one because that's what you thought you had to do. But it also says, wait a second, my, the eyes didn't land on the target. The target was two degrees away from 10 to 12. So your brain will program a 12 degree eye movement on the next trial or within a few trials. Generally, it takes a few. And, um, and you'll move the eyes out 12 degrees next time, even though you consciously think that the target is always at 10 degrees. And that is what we call saccade adaptation. It's a, it's a form of motor learning because you, you have to change the program to stay on target. And the number of trials it takes for the brain to make that change, to change the amplitude of the eye movement that you make, is, is what we use as our, as our performance measure. So in a, you know, in a standard, in a in normal control who does a task like this, where this is happening, it generally takes a couple dozen trials for you to reliably learn that shift. Um, I think it will be really interesting to, to see what happens in, in Huntington's patients. We have a lot of sort of background evidence to suggest that maybe the learning won't take place as quickly. Um, and, and what's really cool is that 
not only measuring how long it takes to learn, but measuring the, the dynamics of the eyes themselves, you can actually map that learning curve onto different parts of the brain. So, um, so to, get, to sort of more succinctly wrap up this long-winded answer that I'm giving you, you you're going to be looking at um, how long and how quickly someone can learn to adjust their eye movement parameters on a repetitive task. And you're going to use the, the specifics of how their eyes move to tell you which, which parts of the brain might be impacted by the disease. And, and what's really neat is that this all happens without the patient being aware. Yeah. And often these changes are apparent before people have other more noticeable symptoms of the disease, such as chorea, things like that. That is fascinating. Um, wow. The fact that, you know, yeah, when I did that, you know, a decade ago when I participated, it was not this little infrared light and being able to do that. It was definitely this big machine on your head. And <laughs> um, so that's fascinating. Um, and I'm sorry, I've been making notes just because I'm going to go back and actually um, look more into the motor learning that you're talking about. Um, just because Huntington's is all about adaptation, right? Like you have to always find a, a way to adapt, whether it's the brain is adapting to those changes. Um, or you're just adapting to a new normal. It's, it's all about adaptation. So I love hearing these things um, and seeing what, just how amazing our brain actually is in adapting and um, learning and all it does that we're not even aware. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. Um, like you said, you, your research is still new, still ongoing. Um, um, do you have a group of people that that you're studying right now, or? Um, um, yeah, so I definitely do, but I just want to respond to what you just said because I thought it was such a neat, well-articulated idea. Like the idea of Huntington's brains being really good at adapting, you know. And we're talking about it's this specific little paradigm, like specific eye movement learning, all this stuff, and how we're going to measure this adaptation capacity of the brain. And then you kind of related that to a global challenge that I think is such a, is so true, right? For people with Huntington's. And, and what I find cool about that is that we know, we, we know Huntington's patients are resilient and we know that their brains are extremely resilient, probably in a lot of ways more resilient than normal people's brains because they're forced to be and they develop comp compensation mechanisms and so, you know, one thing that would be really cool, and I'm kind of excited to see how the data bears this out, is that we might see that while performance on, you know, basic performance parameters might be slightly different than controls in, in how fast they learn, what we might also see is that Parkinson's, or sorry, Huntington's patients are better at learning and better at adapting in certain task conditions than normals because their brains are primed to learn and they're primed to be adaptive. Um, in general. And I think that really speaks to what you just mentioned about sort of a global, uh, you know, attribute of, of, of Huntington's patients and part of what, at least to me, makes them so inspiring. Um, and now to get back to what you said, who am I working with? Uh, so I, I came from Boston uh, back to Montreal 
and I landed at the University of Montreal where all the all, most of the Huntington's work is centralized at, at our institution and so we're it's a fairly big province um, and what's really cool is that we cover the entire province Huntington population and it's a very diverse group so we have people from you know from all kinds of different regions and um, of course most people can are this it's the same type of demographic you would see anywhere else right and same type of idea that you for example that i had in boston the same relative spread of patients but we do have some pockets of patients that are, that are unique up here uh, one being that we have groups in the far north of the province um, where there there was probably at some point some uh, some, some mixing between European founder populations and uh, native Inuit populations. And we know that there are groups of Inuit populations in the, in the far north with, that are known to, with Huntington's and that they're well documented as being Huntington's families. And one of the things that excites me is potentially bringing this um, apparatus up there because as, as we were talking about, it's so easy now to to, you know, it's so portable and easy and non-invasive that we can actually bring this setup up there to them and, and try to see if, you know, as you were sort of alluding to, people in different social situations um, who are forced to adapt in different ways, maybe than what we're used to in, 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 in Huntington's, how their brains might learn. And I think that that presents a very cool um, interface of looking at different sociological and economical and, and even ecological factors and how that plays in with the physiology of the disease. So that's one group of patients that I'd be very interested to uh, work with more and, and have unique access to up here in Quebec. Um, but if of you course, get that access, I want to know about it because, <laughs> yes, that is um, amazing. Well, because we already know, right, your environment really affects a lot of things. Um, and, and there are different cultures. We are not all the same as far as our cultures go. So, like you said, Latin America, how did they have to adapt with not having the stuff that we have in the U.S. and in Canada? Um, you know, they do have, their brains do have to adapt in a different way. And so when they approach these things, it will be in a different way because that's how it, they've always done it. Um, yes, my, I honestly believe my, my opinion is that Huntington's is a disease of adaptation. We are constantly having to, our brain is having to adapt on a cellular level, on a functioning level. Um, and then we as people are having to adapt to those changes. And, um, you know, because as, as it gets to a point where it can't compensate any longer, we have a new normal, right? And so yet again, we adapt. Um, and you see that throughout, no matter what, no matter where a Huntington's person is, you see that. You see them adapting. Um, and so, yeah, to me, Huntington's is a disease of adaptation. Um, and I am so glad that you came on and shared this information. I'm really looking forward to um, the future of your study. And, um, yes, definitely if you get into those other cultures um, and being able to take it to them. And I, I can't wait to hear about that. 
it would be my great pleasure and honor to, to, to bring you back those results and to talk to you about those differences, if they exist, um, when the data comes in. So awesome. absolutely, I would love to share that with you later. Thank you so much. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, this has been a really great show today. Please make sure to tune in in February. Um, we actually have a pretty cool lineup coming up that we're doing the HD Love Stories. Seth and BJ and I are going to be talking about, um, you know, we're going to do our monthly call of Accelerate HD and what we're doing in the Huntington's community to help basically push research forward and get um, more prodromal and presymptomatic involved in um, observational studies and in clinical trials and how we can help um, bridge that gap between the researchers and the HD community. So please make sure to, to tune into that monthly um, show as well. And hopefully, fingers crossed, we will be hearing from um, Roshan Genentech. Um, hopefully somebody will be joining us to talk about their most recent announcement um, in regards to um, bringing on people to their Generation HD one of uh, younger age with lesser disease burden and just kind of delving into that more. So listen on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those things will be shared. Um, and for everybody that is listening, thanks and take care. Love ya. Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit www.help4hd.org and sign up for our email newsletter to stay up to date on all that is going on at Help for HD. Get social with us and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram and subscribe to Help for HD TV on YouTube and ring the bell for notifications.